Welcome everybody. Great to have you here. Great to be together. We're sticking it out for a while outside, as long as it doesn't get too cold. And glad for you to join us online as well. My name is Paul Buckley, the lead pastor here. It's my privilege to bring God's Word this morning. We are starting our new series in the book of 1 John. And um, it was my intention to have the illuminated journals ready for you. And despite two attempts to get the right one sent, um, we didn't get the right one. One was my fault and one was their fault. And uh, so hopefully next week we'll have the, the illuminated journals for you to use and to take notes. Um, and again, the intention there is just to build a library, uh, to let the Word of God have its way in our lives. The Word of God is living and active. It shapes us. It created all things. It, it supplies us. It leads us. And so it's so important for us to be in the Word. And that's why we take time every Sunday in our worship time to be before His Word. So you can turn to 1 John. We'll be starting in verse 1. Um, and again, uh, we have a, the handouts for you, but I would strongly encourage you to have a Bible uh, open, whether it's electronic or paper, in front of you, and to, to actually look right there in the book itself. Uh, we'll be looking at chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. But before we get there, uh, 30 years ago, I got a, a book, I think it was for Father's Day, and it was a really cool book. Um, I'm, I'm slightly mechanically inclined, so I'm able to do a lot of my own home projects. And I think my wife bought me this book. It was a do-it-yourself book. And it was really cool. Uh, this is 30 years ago, by the way, right? So just remember. Um, and in there, it had every sort of project you might need to do in your home. And it had, like, instructions and tools and pictures. And it was complete. It was about this thick, and it was great. It was really helpful for me. Um, I have no idea at this point in time whatever happened to that book. Uh, it is such a different day than it was 30 years ago because that was how you did do it yourself. Now you can get on YouTube and you can find uh, at least 10 different uh, do-it-yourself videos on any project you want. Anything you might do from brushing your teeth is actually do-it-yourself videos on brushing your teeth on, on YouTube to uh, building an underground bunker even with a swimming pool in it. There's, there's everything you would want to do uh, on YouTube. And, and there's, it teaches us how to do all these things. And, well, how does that relate to First John? What we're going to see today is that same sort of heart in John as he leads us in the beginning and the entire book here. He wants the Christians in the churches that he's addressing to understand that they too can have this relationship with God. They too can know God as he does. That's the main point really of this whole book is knowing God, how we can know him. How uh, we can know that we know him, and how can we know that maybe someone doesn't know him, or maybe we don't know him. So it's about knowing God. That's the title of the whole series of, in First John. So we're going to dig in. Let's pray and ask God to teach us as we look at his word. Lord, thank you. Thank you that you instruct us in the most essential things we need. Thank you. In your common grace, we have do-it-yourself videos. But in your special, wonderful grace, you teach us from your word how to ourselves have a relationship with you, our glorious God. And we thank you and I pray through this book and through this time today that you would speak to our, us about this and lead us in your ways, Lord God. And be lifted up and glorified in it, we pray. Help me to serve well as I teach and proclaim your word, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. I'll be reading verses 1 through 4. And John says, That which was from the beginning which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, 
which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest and we have seen it and testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. God's Word from 1 John 1, 1-4. through So this book is about knowing God. And this section is about knowing God. It teaches us that we can know God. That's a profound statement. We can know God. So what I want to do is just dig into it and see three components in knowing God. The what of knowing God. So God Himself, the subject. The how. How does it happen? How does it work? And we see that in this passage. And the why. Kind of what what are the results? What, What does it lead to? Like, so what? The why. So the what, the how, and the why. So I just want to dig into those three subtopics. So um, before we dig into the specifics of this passage, just to give you a little bit of background on this letter that will help us understand what John's doing here and elsewhere. From what we can tell, uh, this letter was written because the churches he was addressing, perhaps the one church even, was having a problem with people who had been part of the church and had left. But the process of them leaving involved them actually kind of going off the rails and what they believed about Jesus Christ, what they believed about God. And they had gone off the rails and they were seeking to draw away others with their claims. Now we don't know the exact issues, but we can guess from what John says in this letter, what he addresses, that's the first place we can go, the most important place, but also historically we have some understanding of what was going on. And it it looks like these people were teaching that they had some special higher revelation of Jesus. They had a special insight into who Jesus was that was beyond what they had known. And, and in that, uh, their insight, they denied his humanity. They were denying that he was actually a man had come in the flesh. And also they denied in that the importance of, of the body, the human body. So the, 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 they denied the importance or the existence of Jesus' body and the importance of the human body, including bodily actions, what you do with your life, how you act, what you do with your body. As long as they were saying, as long as you had access to these higher truths about Jesus, you were all set. You were truly enlightened, and you didn't need to be encumbered with the entailments of, of a physical world. Now, this teaching is, is more or less what we call Gnosticism. It was very early Gnosticism. And Gnosticism is, is just a word, a Greek word, that means knowledge-ism. And it is this idea that if you have knowledge, that's all you need. If you have special secret knowledge, if you have higher knowledge, that's all you need. And what you do in your life doesn't matter so much. You can, there's all different ideas with this. You can do whatever you want. You can be sinful or, or whatever. It's, it, 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 you can just ignore obedience because your body doesn't matter. It's just, I have knowledge and I'm all set. And this is an issue here in this church and, and there's nothing new under the sun Guys, it's an issue for us. It's an issue in our culture as well. And as we go through this book, there'll be lots of application for us because we do tend towards Gnosticism. It's a historic problem of the Western church. 
We tend to think our faith is all about knowledge. It's all about what you believe and understand. And it certainly is about what you believe and understand. That's very important. But we are more than just a brain, more than just rational thought. We are beings that are soul and body. And so how you live it out in the physically created world is really important. And that all stems from what you think about the Son of God. Because if He is a man, a real human being who had flesh and blood and lived the real life in real creation as God the Son, then that changes how you look at life. These people were misunderstanding this. And so John addresses them with this letter. It looks like 1 John, 2 John, and 3 John all go together, actually. It's likely that they are a packet of letters that John sent to this particular church or these churches in the area. And 1 John contains the teaching he wanted them to dig into and maybe to read and, and to take time to go through in their churches and in their home churches and home groups. 2 John was a letter directly to the church itself, so it was a more personal letter to the church from John. And 3 John was a letter to a, a main leader in that church, Gaius. And so if you, if you look at them, they, they, it looks like they all go together and as a packet um, of letters that he sent. And so this one, 1 John, is the one where he brings the instruction. Um, so let's dig in. Let's take a look at what it says. And of course, this passage, this section, teaches us that we can know God. John starts out, he says, that which was from the beginning. That's, that's what he's talking about. That which is from the beginning. That's his very first statement. He's, he wants to address the what? He wants to talk about Jesus, who is God in the flesh. Um, he is the one who is from the beginning. This is not the beginning you know, of like their church or the beginning of something. This is the big beginning, the very beginning, before time began. The ultimate beginning. That which was from the beginning. This is Jesus. And so in this, he's saying, this person I'm going to talk about is the one who was in the very beginning of all things. Before there were things, he was. And you probably hear in that uh, similar words to what John says elsewhere. John chapter 1, right? He says, in the beginning, that's how it starts, John 1, 1, in the beginning, the very beginning of all things, before there was time, before there was anything else, there was the Word. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So this, in John 1, the Word is Jesus. He's going to use the same words here in this section. The second person of the Trinity. He's speaking about God the Son here. The one who was in the beginning and is God, was with God, is God, but is distinct from the Father and the Spirit. John actually uh, digs deep into the doctrine of the Trinity. It's a, Trinity is a word we use to describe God. God is three persons in one being. And so in this first section, he touches on it a little bit, but in the rest of the letter, he's going to get into all three persons of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. In the Gospel of John, he does that as well. And that's what he's talking about. He wants to talk to the, his friends about this one, God himself, and in particular, the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity. Now, it's important to understand that as we consider God, we can't use our normal arithmetic. Things don't add up as we would expect them to. One person plus one person plus one person usually equals three beings. 
but one person, the Father, plus one person, the Son, plus one person, the Holy Spirit, equals one being. Don't ask me to explain it beyond that. That's all I can say. That's all the Word says. And you know what? I don't know if we'll ever understand it. Because God is bigger than our minds and bigger than our ability to understand. And this is the God of Scripture. This is the one that John's talking about. This eternal one. This one who's existed before all things and from whom all things are made and to whom are all things. The subject matter of knowing God is God Himself in all of His glory revealed to us through Jesus who was in the beginning. I think we ought to appreciate the, the sense of that um, because we understand things that were in the beginning of something are usually pretty important, right? Um, like, I don't know, think about cell phones. It's kind of cool if you know somebody who in the beginning of cell phones actually had a cell phone. Anybody here have had one of those cell phones, those car ones in the boxes in the car? And when they were actually called car phones? You, you're cool. Those are, I mean, back then that was a big deal. Way back in like 1902, whenever it was. Um, I don't know, when was that? The, the 80s probably, right? Yeah, and it's, so it's cool. Like, wow, in the beginning you had a cell phone. That's really cool. I didn't even know what they were. And now we all have cell phones. So we get that idea. And, you know, if you knew somebody in the beginning of Apple Computer, if you're, you know, if you're Steve Wozniak, that's really cool. Um, and so Paul, I mean, John is talking about Jesus in the beginning, the ultimate origin of all things. That's what he's getting at here. And he goes on to describe him as the word of life. The word of life. What does that mean, the word of life? What does it mean that he's the word? He's described in John 1 as the word. The word was with God. Um, the Greek word is logos. It means the word. But it's not just like a word, like a noun or a verb. Uh, it means like the instruction set. It means the truth. Um, it, it means the ultimate reality that rules over existence. That's what the word means. Um, it's not just you know, particle of speech. It is the one who is the ultimate truth, the, the source of all truth, the ultimate instruction set that runs the universe. That's how the second person of the Trinity is described as the Word. But here it's the Word of life, right? It's the Word, it's the truth, it's the ultimate instruction set, it's the ultimate reality that come, brings with it life, real life. It's the Word of life. It's the one who brings life as it really is. Life in all that we see. Life as being made in the image of God and conscious of God's creation and conscious of one another and living in relationship with God. This is eternal life to know God and His Son. That's what life is. To know and relate to God in His creation as His creations. And so He is the Word of life. He is the one who's in charge of this reality we, we call life. And it says that He was made manifest. It would be enough just to consider these realities, just to think, well, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and He's the Word of life, and all, the, all those truths, and he's, he's in heaven and dwells and rules over all things, and, and yet we can't quite see Him. We, we can see His creation, we can't see Him. But what's amazing is that God Himself has made Himself known, not just through His creation, but in creation. God united Himself with His creation in Jesus Christ. He's been made manifest. He took on flesh. He became a human being. Jesus Christ 
has not existed forever. The Son of God has. But the Son of God took on flesh, became a human being, was born of the Virgin in Nazareth. In Bethlehem and then in Nazareth. He, he is God in the flesh. He became Jesus Christ as He took on flesh. God entered into creation and joined with creation and became a, a human being, became a man. He was made manifest. This eternal God who was in the beginning, this eternal God who is the Word of life, this infinitely powerful thing through whom all things were made, the object of all creation, entered in creation and became one of us. God joined with creation. And that dignifies creation in a powerful way and it dignifies humanity in an incredibly powerful way. He was made manifest. He's, he, he became one of us. He is the union of two natures in one, God and man. He became a real man in real time, in real space, in real history. He had a real family. He had real friends. He had a real hometown. He ate real food. He slept on a real bed in a real house. He was fully human, just like you and me. He wasn't an idea, merely. He wasn't a spirit, merely. He wasn't certainly some sort of ethereal, otherworldly being with blonde hair and blue eyes and a halo hanging over his head as he walked around. He was a man. A Jewish man. An ancient Jewish man. Didn't look like we see in the stained glass. A real human. And yet the eternal God. And it says that he is the eternal life. He's not just life, he's the eternal life. Now, there's two aspects to that. Because he is the one who has lived forever. He's eternally lived in the past as the second person of the Trinity alongside all the Trinity. And he will live forever. He will never die. He will never cease to exist. He will never grow old. He will live forever. So he's the eternal life in that way. But, but it's not just that he is the eternal life. He is the source of eternal life. He gives us life that's real life. And this life is eternal. The life he gives is eternal. It's not temporary. It's not limited. John says this three times in this letter. This word eternal life. Here in the beginning. In the middle where he's describing the fruit of eternal life. That when someone has this eternal life. They look certain ways. They do certain things. So the body matters. What you do matters. When you have this life there are ways you live it out. He says that in the middle. And then at the end he says this in John 1 John 5. And this is the testimony that God has given us eternal life. And this life is in His Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son does not have life. Eternal life exists only in God Himself and comes to us through the Son. He alone possesses eternal life and can dispense it to us. If you don't have the Son, you don't have life. Very plain and clear here. And yet, we might think, and in our culture might say, well, that's kind of exclusive, even bigoted, isn't it? Certainly there are many paths to eternal life. All equally good. Well, it isn't about exclusivity. It isn't about narrow-mindedness. That's not the point here. It's not that God is some sort of spoiled child with his little toy called eternal life that he won't let anyone else have. 
mine, mine, only I can loan it out. No one else can have it. It's not, not that he somehow begrudgingly holds things from us or sabotages other legitimate efforts. You know, the, those other religions, they're making legitimate efforts and I'm going to sabotage them. That is not the case at all. It doesn't work that way. Let me use maybe a metaphor that would help. If you want chocolate ice cream, where do you go? Ice cream store? Okay. So they have chocolate ice cream. Where do they get it? An ice cream farm or whatever, right? Some cows and, and so forth. But, but what makes it chocolate? Chocolate cows. No, there are no chocolate cows. Uh, cocoa beans, chocolate, right? You have to have chocolate in chocolate ice cream to make it chocolate ice cream. The source is the chocolate. Now that is really exclusive and bigoted in my mind. How come strawberries can't make chocolate ice cream? How come strawberries can't supply? Or maple walnut, why can't that be a source of chocolate? Or black raspberry, why can't that be a source of chocolate? Because it's not chocolate. There's no chocolateness in those things. I hope you get my point. God is the only one that gives life. There is no life apart from Him. He created all things. You are alive because of Him. You are sustained because of Him. He gives you your physical life. And He would give you, should you turn to Him and trust Him, spiritual life and eternal life. But it comes from nowhere else because nowhere else has that life. Nothing else is God. Only God alone is God. It's not about him being exclusive. Matter of fact, as we read the scriptures, it's the other way around. He has, he has relentlessly pursued humankind when we were running the other way. Just about tackled us with his love and his power and his truth that we might come to faith and receive this eternal life. If he had not chased us down, we would not have chosen him. He's the one who gives eternal life and He alone gives it. That's just how it is. Because He alone is God. He's the only real source of eternal life. And this is the subject matter of Paul's section, of John's section here. The one who is the eternal life. The one who is the source. There's no life apart from Him. So we need to be careful that we know the right Jesus. That's the point here. There are people who have left and they are following the wrong Jesus and John's trying to point it out to the people in the church. They need to get who Jesus is. They need to get the right Jesus. There are lots of fake Jesuses out there, guys. Lots of fake Jesuses out there. There's the Jesus, the good teacher, but nothing more. That's the fake Jesus. There's Jesus, the social justice leader, but nothing more. That's not the real Jesus. There's Jesus, the new age guru, who's just right along every other deity. There's Jesus, the Republican or Jesus the Democrat. Those are dangerous versions. There is the meek and passive Jesus that does our bidding, makes us feel good, but asks nothing of us. There is the dashboard bobblehead Jesus. He keeps us safe when we drive, but otherwise He's irrelevant. There is the religious Jesus that if we, if we are, do enough for Him, He'll do something for us. These are all fake Jesus. And there's more. None of these Jesuses will give you eternal life. There's only one real Jesus and He alone gives it. And He's revealed here in God's Word in 1 John and elsewhere in the Word. He gives true life. He's given Himself for you. He is the atoning sacrifice for your sins. He is your advocate should you trust Him 
who went to the cross to pay the debt for your rebellion against this glorious God. He paid it in full with His righteous life, shed His blood. He died. And yet, in His perfect obedience and as God the Son, He, he was raised by the Father and the power of the Spirit to live eternal, victorious over sin and death. This is the real Jesus, the God-man, a real human being, yet God in the flesh, who is all these things for you, revealed in the Word, that you might have in Him eternal life and walk with Him, the real Jesus. Do you know Him? Well, John goes on to explain in this passage, woven throughout the passage, how one would know Him. He's he is knowable. That's important. God is knowable in Jesus. He is knowable in Jesus. He's not distant, but He's real. He's tangible. He's near. He's another human who lived on earth. He, he was historical. He existed. John saw Him with his eyes, heard Him, watched Him in action, touched Him with His hands. John knew this person and watched what he did and heard his teaching. He is real. Jesus of Nazareth was a real human being who lived and died and rose again in ancient Israel 2,000 years ago. He suffered and died under Pontius Pilate. A real governor, a real ruler we know is a documented ruler. He was crucified under him. Crucified for our sins. He rose again on the third day. He appeared to over 500 people. After his resurrection, the resurrected Jesus, he had died there in front of everybody and he was raised again and he appeared to over 500 people. He appeared to his brother, half-brother Jude, who was not a believer at that point. Changed his life. Jude becomes a leader in the church. It is a well-documented reality that God became a man and lived among us and taught and was real and died on the cross, and rose again, and turned His disciples' worlds upside down, and through them turned our world upside down. It's real. That's what John's getting at. A real human who he knew, who lived, who's historical, who actually did things on this earth. It's real. It isn't, he isn't an idea. He's a real being, a human being. God in the flesh. And He revealed Himself in history, preserve that history, preserve the Word of God, and is active now by the power of the Spirit as we encounter the Word, and as we consider the history, and as we look at His creation, that we might know Him. He wants you to know Him, and to live in that. And there's times, I think, when, when we just take it for granted and don't really get like all that this means. It's really an amazing true story. I, I think maybe, I'm not sure why we take it for granted. I, I'm, I'm not sure why we aren't always just amazed and, and jazzed by this. I mean, if I, told you, if I told you that there was an alien that had come to earth and lived in my hometown, that he was my friend, and I hung out with him, you would think, oh no, how are you doing? Are you feeling okay? But then if I told you that he died and he rose again, and that he said he was the way, the truth, and the life, you would think I was even crazier. But if I could prove it to you with historical records, documented interviews, I could show you his life and his teaching, what would you do? Let me see it! 
Show me. And if you came to believe that that was true as well, wouldn't you want to try to convince all your friends too? Isn't that pretty much what happened? God became a man, lived a real life, had friends, family, people saw him, it was recorded in history, he taught, those teachings were recorded, he fulfilled prophecy, he fulfilled the Old Testament, he taught in a way that's clearly consistent with all the Bible, he died, he rose again, Five, over 500 people saw him, their lives were changed, they became martyrs, just Fearful nobodies became martyrs for him. And he's continued to turn lives upside down. It makes no sense that we are not always jazzed by it. It makes no sense that this isn't on the, on the news every night. Guys, this should be on the news every night. This happened. This is the most amazing thing that has ever happened. It should be on the news every night. It should be in every household Every household should be abuzz with this truth of the gospel of God in Christ. And so maybe a starting point for us, just ask God to help us see how spectacular this good news is. And let us pray for opportunities to tell our friends just the facts. To ask them, what do you think about these facts? What do you think about Jesus? Who do you think He was? And then just draw them out. Well, where you, you know, how did you think through that? Where did you get that? Do it in a gracious, respectful way. But there's some important facts that everybody needs to think about here. And of course, the goal behind this is that God wants to be known. And that's what John's getting at. This is real. He wants to be known. We've known Him. And you too can know Him as well. Final point. The Why? Well, there's no way for somebody who's had an encounter with Jesus not to want to do something about it, not to live it out. There's just no way. And so John says, you know, we've seen Him, we've touched Him, we've experienced Him. This is who He is. He's the one from the beginning, the Word of life, the eternal life. And so we testify and proclaim about Him. That's what John's saying. We've we got to tell this story. We've got to tell others about this experience. We have to testify and proclaim. We must tell others how our lives have been changed, how we've been changed by Him. And of course, this is what we do, right? When we, when we experience something profound, and especially when it's something positive, we tell others. It's, we, we're not too good at, at keeping things in, especially when they're good things, right? Some of us are maybe a little better than others. But we all, we all can't help but leak out those things to others. Just, let, me, let, me, let me just tell you. That's a natural reaction to, for us to just to share important news. And to tell others and tell others this story over and over again. I mean, if you lived through the blizzard of 78, um, how many times have you told that story? Hundreds of times, right? I mean, it, I'm sure our kids are like, please stop. There's been way worse things since. Stop the blizzard of 78 stories. But we tell them over and over because it had a profound impact on us. And it's not necessarily good news, but we do that. We tell others. Same with this story, and that's what's going on with John. Is I, I have to tell others. And of course, we have so many good things to tell, but most importantly, what God has done in our lives. To tell our story. I love to hear Ken Jury, when he was alive and with us, he's with the Lord now, tell his story. Ken.
then had terminal cancer and had walked away from the Lord. And God restored him in his relationship with Jesus and then healed his cancer. He went from being terminal, two months to live, living another 15 years, I think it was. And I would love to hear Ken tell his story. And if, you, if you knew Ken, you can picture him in his classic voice, tears streaming down his face, talking about what God had done for him, how he had restored him and healed him. That's what John's doing here. And that's what every believer who encounters Jesus must do if we understand who he is. There's, there's no way not to do that if we understand it. And so John wants to share this fellowship that he has with God and with the Father and the Son. That word fellowship is an unusual word. There's actually no word in English, contemporary English, that quite captures fellowship. The thing that's closest is team. I think that's the closest word. But it's this word that captures a bunch of elements. It, 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 it's about being connected to one another in relationship together. But it's not just mere relationship. It's a relationship with purpose. It's like team. It's a partnership. It's a closeness together. And so he says we have fellowship with the Father and the Son. We, we know them and, and we have perfect union with them through Christ, with the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We'll realize the fullness of that in time. And yet, we're on a mission with them as well. And so John is saying we have fellowship with, with the Father and the Son and we want you to have fellowship. We want you to be part of this team as well. We, this has so blessed us that we want you to be part of it. And he, he explains that fellowship to them. He can't help but testify and proclaim to it. And then at the end, he says something that's peculiar. Last verse, he says, And we are writing these things, so everything that's preceded. We're writing these things and everything that will come after it, so that our joy will be complete. That's a little peculiar. What does he mean? We're writing these things so that our joy. That's kind of like, it reminds me of when Bill O'Baggins says in, in the, in the uh, Lord of the Rings, I don't know half of you half as well as I should like, and I like less than half of you half as well as you deserve. What does that mean, Bilbo? Didn't sound right. So it seems peculiar, but if we dig a little deeper, I think we'll understand it. John says almost the same thing in 2 John and in 3 John. 2 John 12, he says, Though I have much to write to you, I would rather not use paper and ink. Instead, I hope to come to you and talk face to face so that our joy may be complete. And then in 3 John, he says, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. So this is a shared joy that John's talking about. And I think if we think about it, it makes sense because he has encountered Jesus. And he knows this life that's eternal life. He has this fellowship with the Father and the Son. And he wants others to share it too. And he wants to talk about Jesus. And he wants to help them stay on track in believing the real Jesus and understanding what that looks like, and understanding what it doesn't look like, so that they may continue in this fellowship. Because he knows how wonderful this fellowship is, and how amazing it is. And so, we write these things so that we can together share this joy. You see, it's a mark of knowing Jesus. That you want others to know Him too. It's a mark of knowing His love that you love others and want them to know Him too. That's what love is, right? It's vicarious joy. It's rejoicing in the other's good. And that's what John's getting at when, when, when um, 
when I was little, we uh, grew up fishing. I loved to fish as a kid. I have memories of fishing with my dad and my brothers every summer. Um, and it's just something about fishing. I'm sorry if you're not a, if you're not a fisher person, um, you probably don't relate. But if you if you love fishing, you know there's just nothing like when you've got that lure that works and the big bass hits and your line goes uh, reeling out on the drag um, and you're trying desperately and then the thing jumps. There's just nothing like it. It's wonderful. So I've loved fishing my whole life. Um, but then I got married um, and had kids. And something changed. I didn't love fishing as much as something else. Now I know, of course, the right answer, which is the right, my answer, is my wife and my kids themselves. But that's not what I'm getting at in the story. Something changed in what I thought about fishing. I grew to actually not love fishing myself as much, but helping others to fish. And, and the, the highest joy for me in fishing was to watch my kids catch something. Watch their faces when, when they had something on the line and when, they, when we brought it in and they were able to hold it. And to watch my wife actually just last month. Um, we haven't done too much fishing together. So we went, we went fishing. I took Peg fishing and she caught a massive pickerel and it was so much fun. I have it on video. Her laughing with just joy at catching this pickerel and then just enjoying that. Now why do I tell you that story? Not just because I like fishing. It's a picture of vicarious joy. And when we have the love of God in our hearts, when Jesus is our, the real Jesus is our Jesus, and when we know this fellowship, we are going to take great joy and the most joy in sharing it and watching others know Him, be changed by Him, to walk with Him. That's, that's a mark of, of genuine life in the Lord. And it is so wonderful to watch people come to faith in Christ and watch them receive and live in forgiveness and new life. And to watch people be baptized. And I'd love to have a baptism this fall. If you have come to faith and you've not yet been baptized, please let me know. One of the highlights of church life is a baptism. And I imagine you feel the same as a believer to some degree. Now let me recommend, if you don't, something that I think is very helpful. There's a verse that was shared with me as a young believer that was really helpful. It's Philemon 6. And it says this in the NIV translation. I pray that you may be active in sharing your faith so that you will have a full understanding of every good thing you have in Christ. I pray that you may be active in sharing your faith that you might have a full understanding of every good thing we have in Christ. Listen to the logic of that. Give away what you have and you'll appreciate what you have more. And the way it factors into what John's talking about in our vicarious joy is give it away to others and you'll start to appreciate it more and you'll love it more and you'll want to give it away more and you'll be more excited and joyful at watching others receive what you have. And you'll create a cycle of increasing joy in others and sharing this fellowship. That's how it works. That's how it worked for John. That's how it works for us. So in conclusion, we can know God. The eternal glorious God has made Himself known in the Son, the Savior and King of all. He is real and we can truly know Him. He's historical, factual, He's real, He's human. And when we know Him, He fills us with love and joy and that overflows in love and joy for others' sake.
Let's pray. Lord, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You for this section of Scripture. We thank You, Lord, for this life that we have. I pray that You would just fan into flame our joy in You, Jesus, and our joy in sharing You with others as we follow You, our great God. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.